text that we're looking at is Acts 2, 37 to 47. We're looking at the essence and characteristics of the church. I'll read the text for us. If you want to follow along in your Bible, if you brought a Bible along or on your phone, if you need a Bible, you can also grab one from the back by the door. I'll read the text for us. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles' brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is God's word. So I don't know if you've noticed, but we got a communication problem. I think this last two years has probably brought this out more so than any of our lives have shown us up to this point. We struggle to communicate with one another. It's hard to be understood and to understand other people in a day like ours. And there could be numerous reasons for that, but one that most sociologists will cite is that postmodernism, this idea that there is no objective truth, that truth is relative, has trained us to believe that words, individual words, don't always mean the same thing. And so we struggle when we communicate because we don't always define our terms. I mean, think about terms like racism, family, woman, conservative. You can understand those terms in a number of different ways. And if you're not on the same page with the person that you're talking to, you're going to very quickly end up in miscommunication, aren't you? It turns out this has been a problem for most of human history, and there have been a number of ways to try to fix this problem, but one that I think is maybe, maybe the best, or, or at least the most interesting to me, is the way that Aristotle tried to solve this problem of defining terms. Aristotle would take a term and he would break it into two parts. He called those things, because he speaks in Latin, the essentia and the acadanes, which you don't need to know Latin, but you can know the translation. He talks about the essence of a thing, and the characteristics of a thing. The essence of a thing is what makes a thing a thing. What are the, the things that make an item, a word, a term, the thing that it is? The octanes or the characteristics, are the things that don't define a thing, but nonetheless are distinctive markers of the thing. Now, I realize that's super esoteric, abstract, and you might not have any idea what I'm talking about, so let me give you a really concrete example. If I asked you to go find a beaver, what would you look for? You'd probably look for a rodent with a flat tail. Maybe you'd even look for those distinctive orange teeth that beavers have. 
And you probably end up finding something, well, that looks kind of like this, right? This is a beaver. But I'm guessing you very quickly also can figure out that this is not. Even though it has a flat tail, it looks like a rodent, you know that it's not a beaver. Because you understand the difference between the essence of a thing and the characteristics of a thing. While a flat tail and distinctive orange teeth and rodent-like size are distinctive characteristics of a beaver, they don't necessarily make a creature a beaver. Say, for example, you come across a beaver that for some reason has had its tail amputated and had terrible dental hygiene and lost its teeth. Would that still be a beaver? Well, yes, it would be, right? Because the tail and the teeth are not what define it as a beaver, but they are characteristics distinctive of a healthy beaver. So as we think about defined terms, we have to be able to separate what is the essence of a thing from what are the characteristics of a thing. What are the things that absolutely make a thing a thing? And what are the things that are natural distinctive characteristics of a healthy thing? Now, I hope you followed me on that because I'm going to try it with a certain word. Church. What is the essence and what is the characteristics of church? If I asked you to go find a church, what would you look for? There are 150 different ways to answer that question. But much like a beaver, I think, in general, we would start to look for the characteristics rather than the essence of a thing. So what is the essence? And what are the characteristics of church? Well, the author of Acts, Luke, through the work of Peter and the Holy Spirit, gives us insight into what is the essence of the church and what are the characteristics of a healthy church in the text that we read today. For context, the text that we are reading comes right at the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon. You remember this story? The disciples are hiding from the Jews for fear that they are going to be killed, and the Holy Spirit comes powerfully on them. Tongues of fire appear above their heads, and they are able to speak in languages that they previously were not able to speak in. And that's a really good thing, because there are people from all over the nation of Israel who are gathered in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. So these guys go out, they start preaching the resurrection of Jesus, and particularly, Peter stands up and gives a sermon based on the texts of Joel 2 and Psalm 16 to prove that Jesus is the Messiah who was killed but raised to life. And where we picked up the text is right at the end of this, right? After they hear this sermon, the people come to Peter and the other apostles and they say, brothers, what should we do? Implicit in that is they realize we killed the Messiah and now he's alive. That means he can come for us. So what are we supposed to do? Peter's answer Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and this promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. In other words, Peter says, what is the essence of Christianity? If you want to be saved, if you want to be brought into Christ, what is the essence? He says, repent and be baptized. But if we analyze that a little bit more, we get to see what Classic theologians have said for, well, 2,000 years since these words were actually spoken, that the essence of the church is God's word preached and believed and baptism in the Lord's Supper administered. Peter says, you want to get into the faith? Well, you've heard the preaching, repent. 
The word has convicted your heart because you've been listening to what it says and you believe that it's true. Repent and be baptized. And this is the essence of the church. Again, if I told you to go find a church, you'd look for a whole bunch of things probably that maybe aren't even these things. But this is what the Bible says is the essence of the church. This is what makes church, church. It doesn't have to have a building. It doesn't have to have songs. It doesn't have to even have necessarily a called pastor at all times. It has to have these things. God's word preached and believed and baptism and Lord's Supper administered. And consequently, this means this is the essence of a Christian too. We might think, like I asked the kids, how do I know I'm a Christian? We might think of any number of things. I go to church, I'm kind to my neighbor, I give my offerings, I pray occasionally. None of those things are the essence of a Christian. The essence of a Christian is somebody who hears God's word and believes it, is baptized, and is regularly receiving the Lord's Supper. That's a Christian. None of the other things actually make you a Christian. They are simply characteristics of a Christian. And this is important for us to understand because I think we get bogged down with a whole bunch of other things that we think church should be or do that aren't the essence of church. They aren't what makes church, church, and consequently what make us Christians. But Peter doesn't stop there. He says that, uh, Luke tells us that with many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them specifically this statement, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. That's a power-packed phrase, so let's break it down. The first thing he says is, save yourselves. Save yourselves. Immediately when you hear those words, bells should be ringing in your head because you know, as a good Christian, that we don't save ourselves. That Jesus saves us. That it is only because of Christ's righteousness that we are saved before a holy God. It is not our obedience, but Christ's obedience. It's It's not our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. It's not our ability to please God, but Jesus' ability to please God that means that we will be saved forever. So he can't mean that we need to save ourselves for eternity. What he means is save yourself in a different sense, in a sense actually that we still have in English. He means save yourself in the same way that we might say, save room for dessert, or save some for later, or save yourself for marriage. Save not in the sense of like a person falling off a cliff who reaches out a hand and is grabbed by somebody else and is saved from their certain demise. Save yourselves in the sense of restrain yourself, hold yourself back, separate yourself from. Now, what we should first understand about this is that this is no longer Peter talking about the essence of the church because he's already answered that question. What is the essence? What should we do? Repent and be baptized. But now the natural outflowing of a healthy Christian who believes that he should repent and be baptized and feed on the Lord's Supper for the strengthening of his faith will save himself, restrain himself, hold himself back from this corrupt generation. Now, when you read the word generation, I'm guessing most of you think of something like Gen Z, Millennials, Boomers, Gen Xers, Greatest Generation, Silent Generation. Uh, That's actually pretty helpful here, although we should be honest that that way of thinking about the word generation is very modern. Uh, Generational studies is really something that's only existed for the last 30 or 40 years or so. But it is kind of helpful once we realize what a generation actually is. I think it's easy for us to think that a generation is just a group of people who were born between one set of years and another set of years. 
Like if you were born after 1980 up till 2000, you're a millennial. If you're born after 2000, you're Gen Z. If you were born after 1945, then you're a baby boomer, or whatever the years might be for that. But it's not so much about being born in a certain set of years. It's being a group of people whose way of viewing life has been radically altered by a cultural or historical shift. Right, those years that we pick to identify generations in our life today is not just arbitrary. It's based on major cultural or historical shifts. For example, Gen Z. They're a generation that has only known a world with a smartphone. Millennials are a generation that has only known the world with the internet. Baby boomers, known only a world post-World War II. And these massive cultural historical shifts change the way that people view the world. Just to give you an example of this, my uh, grandpa, uh, I remember him very vividly uh, taking all of the maps that he had, he had stacks of maps, and he would spread them out on the kitchen table as he was thinking about going for a road trip, and he would trace his finger, and he'd figure out what all the turns were supposed to be, and he'd memorize them. I don't know if you know, but I don't do that. I don't have any maps. And I don't pour over them because I have a device in my pocket that knows all the maps and also can very quickly get me from where I am to where I want to be. Turns out my grandpa kind of kept the same method, though. Even after the advent of the smartphone, I think he finally graduated to, like, printing off MapQuest directions, which, who does that? I guess my grandpa. Um, He kept doing that because he didn't see the world the way that I saw the world. I knew a world with the Internet. I knew it was easy, that I wouldn't have to own all these maps and be able to pour over them. So what is a generation? A generation is a group of people who lives according to a specific major cultural or historical shift. They live different because they realize that the world is different than it used to be. So when Peter says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation, what is he saying? He's saying, restrain yourself, hold yourself back, separate yourself from a group who does not live in line with a major historical cultural shift that has just happened. And you know what that major historical cultural shift is, right? There was a man who was dead, and he's not dead anymore. So very, very basically, what is the characteristics of the church? A health church is a group that saves itself, restrains itself, holds itself back from a way of being that denies the resurrection. Now again, that's a little bit esoteric, so let me put some concrete terms on this. If we understand the gospel, if we get the essence of the Christian faith, the natural healthy outgrowing of that belief is that we will live differently from the rest of the world. We will save ourselves from this corrupt generation. So when other people in the world are thinking about growing their wealth so that they can have more for retirement, so that they can live comfortably, that's not how Christians think. Well, the rest of the world is thinking about pursuing the next pleasure, whether it be food or whether it be drink or whether it be sex or whether it be an experience. Christians don't think that way. Where the rest of the world might say, you need to rebel against your government because your government is corrupt. Christians don't think that way. Well, the rest of the world might be saying, you have to listen to everything your government says about everything you have to do. Christians don't live that way. Well, the world might say, children are a burden. Christians don't live that way. And the list goes on. 
Because we believe that resurrection is possible, in fact, it has happened and it is going to happen for us, we think completely differently about the world and how we live in it. And that's very basically what Peter is saying. Now, he's going to give you a specific set of characteristics. This being like kind of the, the overarching theme, the header, if you will, in your notes. But then he's going to work through a number of specific outgrowths of that in the early Christian church. What did it look like that these people were saving themselves from this corrupt generation? And I read them for you. You remember them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, prayer. They were selling possessions. They were always together. They were meeting in the temple, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But one thing I want to do before we actually walk through all those, those things is think about for a second, what does that set of characteristics look like? if it's inverted? What does it look like if we get the photo negative of what that early Christian church looked like? Like if we took all the characteristics of that, in, that early Christian church and we flipped them on their head, what would that look like? Now credit where credit is due, I did not think of doing this, I heard it's from another pastor. But I wanna read this for you. This is Acts 2, 42 to 47, inverted. The opposite of what it says. They didn't study their Bibles too much, and they were very private. They didn't know their fellow Christians all that well, and their prayer life was sporadic at best. The Lord's Supper wasn't a priority. Almost no one noticed their lifestyle because it was so incredibly similar to everyone else. Believers hardly knew one another, and they all pursued their own individual goals. They all pursued material wealth, seemingly unfazed by the needs of others. They struggled to get together once a week, and even that was seen as an unwelcome obligation as was any attempt to get to, get to spend time with their fellow Christians. They knew the right things to say as Christians, but they were considered hypocritical by the surrounding world, and their numbers dwindled as the years went along. Does that sound familiar? I think if we're honest, this sounds like the Christian church in North America in 2022. With the exact photo negative of what God calls the church to be. Now understand, these things are characteristics. They are not the essence, right? The essence is God's word preached and believed and baptism and the Lord's Supper administered. So it's not that necessarily we aren't the church or that we aren't saved because of these things. What we have to realize is that if we believe those things, this is the natural healthy outgrowth of that. To say it differently, we might be a beaver, but we're certainly not a healthy one. And actually, beyond this, I think we're also really hard to recognize. Like, if I told you to go find a beaver, and you found a rodent that had no tail and no orange teeth, you might be eventually able to identify it as a beaver through some hard work, but it's not easily recognizable. And I wonder if the same thing is happening with the church. We may be the church. We have the word. We preach it. We hear it. We believe it. We have baptism. We have the Lord's Supper. But we're not healthy. And we're hard to recognize. I mean, there are people out here in the world who understand that they are dying, that something is wrong, and that there's no ultimate solution to the pain and guilt and shame that they feel. And so they're searching for something that's going to give them an answer. But I'm afraid we don't look like something that can offer the answer they're looking for. And so I guess what I'm asking is, does this bother us? Does this bother us? If so, it's good for us to meditate on what this early Christian church looked like as we think about how we prioritize our time or our energy or our money or our relationships or how we view church. 
So let's dig in. I put the, the text of the scripture right in your notes sheet. I broke it down by the phrases, each of the phrases that I'm going to explain to you. If you want to circle or highlight or underline or write little notes in there, that would be really helpful here. Let's walk through exactly those characteristics. First of all, Luke tells us that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching fellowship, breaking of bread into prayer. That word devoted is the word that really kind of means to stay stubbornly close to. Um, maybe you had this in grade school, like the one kid who always followed you around that you didn't really want around you. That's kind of the idea here. Stubbornly following, stubbornly staying close to. That means that these Christians were not always doing these things, but they were consistently doing these things. It's not that they were constantly in prayer and constantly in the Bible and constantly all these things, but they were regularly, daily in these things. Another way to think of it is you, you have uh, close friends, right? Those close friends are those ones who you know that if they left, it would substantially change your life. That's the way that the Christians saw this list of things. They were things that if they left, if they did not have them, it would substantially change their life. So what are those things? First, the apostles' teaching. They, of course, had the physical apostles with them to teach, but the, fa uh, the fact of the matter is those apostles were usually on the road. They were going from church to church, city to country, to start new churches, to support new churches. So the odds that you would come to church on a Sunday morning and hear an apostle preach were pretty rare. So what does it mean to study the apostles' teaching? It's to be in the scripture. To see God's word written down, the words of the apostles, as something to be devoted to. That I define my life by it. I define how I think about things by it. That if I was not in my Bible every day, that would be weird. It would mess with my routine. Then it says they were devoted to fellowship. I think when we hear fellowship, maybe we mostly think of like coffee and donuts in the entryway. It's like our fellowship time. That's not really what the word means. Uh, it's probably better to go back to the old English word that fellowship came from. It's fellow shape. Fellow shape. In other words, fellowship is to be around your fellows so much that you start to take on their shape. You know this if you're married. You spend enough time together, you start to think like each other, talk like each other, same mannerisms, same values, right? You start to take on fellow shape. Well, the Christians were like this. They spent enough time together that they actually started to become like one another. They started to talk the same ways, think the same things. They started to, to value the same things. They were devoted to being with one another so much that they started to act like one another. Then it says that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. A breaking of bread, it could be just a very basic way of saying they ate together, uh, but I don't think that's what it is here. First of all, Luke will later say that they were breaking bread together and eating together, and here he specifically puts the word the in front of breaking of bread, meaning not just any breaking of bread, but a specific breaking of bread. So maybe you can see where I'm going with this, but what would be a specific meal that Christians would eat together? The Lord's Supper, right? They were devoted to it. They didn't see it as optional or nice if I can get there. They said, this is what defines us as a community. We're going to be together for the breaking of bread. And it says they were also devoted to prayer. Um, unfortunately, I think our, our English translation uh, it limps a little bit here. In the Greek, literally, the, uh, the way you should read it is the prayers. So we have, again, that definite article there in front of prayer. And the word is plural. So again, not just any prayers that you say, but a specific set of prayers. 
So what would be a specific set of prayers that Christians would say together? Sunday morning worship, right? I mean, we think of prayer maybe just in terms of the Lord's Prayer, but really everything that you say on a Sunday morning is considered prayer, the prayers. So they were dedicated to public worship together. Again, they didn't see it as optional. They saw it as something they were regularly doing, that their life would substantially change if they were not in worship together. Now, before we go on, can I just note something? Do you see what these four things are? They're the first two steps of that proven process over there. Right? Learn, be in worship every Sunday, which also includes the Lord's Supper at 945. Every Sunday. And live, they gather together to take on fellow shape as they studied the apostles' teaching together. But these, these things are not just things we thought up to be cute with nice little clip art. They're biblical. They're what God calls us to. They're what a healthy Christian church looks like. Luke continues. He says, all of the believers were together and had everything in common. And this is exactly communal living, right? Um, I think sometimes we're a little bit nervous about that, but that's really what, this, what it says is going on here. Um, we probably have to nuance it a little bit and, and realize that life as they experienced it is somewhat different from what we experience today. You have to remember, many of the people who were coming into the Christian church at this time were slaves, so they were not able to provide for themselves, and so very often the more wealthy members of the congregation would welcome them into their homes, bring them into their families. This would create communal living situations. Um, we don't have that so much because the vast majority of us are able to sustain ourselves by ourselves. Um, it's not like you're going to starve if I don't provide you a meal for the most part. So um, we don't really have that same type of communal living situation, but the principle is still in place here that we care about what's going on in one another's lives and we are around each other enough to know those things so that we can support and help each other in those things. And while it might not be making a meal, or it might, it might not be giving money, or it might, we're there and we're ready to help. We're ready to serve. We see everyone else's problems as at least partially our responsibility. One more tangent on this really quick. Um, this kind of language sometimes leads people to say that Christianity is like a cult. You ever heard that? I know people have even said that about our church. You guys are kind of like a cult. Um, with all due respect, that's a very childish accusation. Cult is the kind of word you use when you don't want to actually have a conversation with somebody. You just want to dismiss them. I'll give you a couple pieces of evidence to this. First of all, what is a cult? Define your terms. What are the Akadanes and what are the essentia of a cult? I don't think we have a common definition of what that means. Most people, I think, think that a cult is just a group that I don't want to deal with. They don't think like me and so I don't want to talk to them. You can see the childishness in it. But if we step back and realize that the word cult is just the root of our word culture, we understand that a cult is just a group of people who live in a unique way from the people around them. And in that sense, everybody's in a cult. You might be in multiple cults. You might be in the cult of Christianity. You might be in the cult of Toronto Blue Jays fans. You might be in the cult of people who shop at Whole Foods. I don't know. Like, it's a cult, right? It's a way that you live because you see a certain set of values that you find beneficial and you want other people to also see those values as beneficial. Everybody's in a cult. So let's get over this term, cult. We're not a cult. But even if we were, I mean, honestly, this is the kind of cult I want to be part of. 
right? A cult that isn't holding people in with any kind of shame tactics. It's a cult that is generously giving away not just the forgiveness of sins, but this kind of living where we provide for one another, care about one another, are in each other's lives, praying for one another. And as far as cults go, this is a pretty good one. Text continues, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Notice, they didn't just take from their income and give some of that in their offerings. They actually sold their assets. They liquidated the things that they had in order to be generous. And can I press that on us for a second? Like, it is so easy for us just to think, well, you know, I give 10% of my income because that's the biblical standard and I'm pretty good. Or maybe I even go a little bit above and beyond that. Or maybe I'm at 12, 13, 14% of my income. The early Christian church went even a step farther. They sold stuff to be able to be generous. And so I'm going to get a little bit specific with us here. Are we generous enough that if we were not generous, we could actually have more assets in our life? Like we could have a bigger house. We could have a second or a third car. We could go on another vacation. And then maybe the the flip side of that, if we have those things, are we willing to give them up in order to be generous? Would we downsize? Would we sell our second car? Would we give up one of our vacations, even if it's our only vacation, so we can be generous with those who are in need? My guess is maybe about 75% of you just heard me say those words and said, yeah, nice one. You think, no way, I'm not actually going to do that. That's really nice that the early Christians did that, but I don't do that. Let me ask you this. Jesus says in the Gospels, whatever you have done for the least of these, you've done for me. Like on that last day, what are you going to say to that? On the last day when he says, the things you have done for the least of these, you did for me, and you say, yeah, but. (laughs) I mean, you could take that up with Jesus if you want. I'm just telling you what he says. Luke continues, then every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. So every day they were worshiping together. This, uh, this past week, I went to the National March for Life in Ottawa, and uh, I was talking to a lady there. She was a Catholic, and she said something I'd never, I'd never thought about or heard before, but it really struck me. She said, um, you know, in the Catholic Church, we have worship every day, and I hear that some Protestants are jealous of that. I never thought about that before, but I guess I wonder if we are. Like, I'm not saying we have to go to church every day because, honestly, there are some problems with taking the Mass every day because, well, in Roman Catholic theology, saying the Mass is a good work that earns salvation for you, and so we're not really into that. But I'm wondering, are we jealous of the fact that they worship every day? Or are we bothered sometimes that we're only coming for one hour of our week to be here? If I offered us another service to come during the week, would we come? Or would we say, yeah, I got my church on Sunday. I'm okay. We have to ask ourselves that. Then finally, he says, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. So they were eating together. They were doing social things together, things that had nothing to do with being Christians. They just were around each other. And the result was that people saw them and were impressed by that. I may not, I may not believe what they believe, but they're good folks. The type of people I want to be around. The type of people that if, if they left our community, that would, be a, that would be a bad thing. 
The result then, Luke tells us, is that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And notice, by the way, that this is God's work again. We've been pressing on this the last couple weeks, that the mission of the church is not the church going out and accomplishing things, but Jesus accomplishing things and inviting us to join him on his mission. You see that right here. They were being saved because God was saving them. The church was simply welcoming them into the arms of their Savior. Peter even gives this to us in, in chapter 2, verse 39, when he says that all those whom the Lord will call are the ones who will be, will be baptized and repent. This is God's work, not ours. And so notice this. What grows the church? Really good preaching? Well, you can argue whether Peter's sermon on Pentecost was really good preaching. It certainly brought 3,000 people into the church that day, but honestly, that's not all that impressive of a number. More than 3,000 people become Christians every day right now. What was happening there was that the church was loving one another and living generous lives devoted to the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer, and the Lord just started adding people. Why? Because Jesus wants to bring people into a healthy church, a church where they are going to be built up, where they are going to hear the word, where they are going to be fed the supper, they're going to be reminded of their baptism, because that's what makes the church. So let me ask you, is this what we are? And then secondarily, if not, is this what we want to be? If not, then we got to have a serious gut check about whether we still want to be a church. Because if we're just here to consume, if we're just here to show up and get spiritual commodities and comfort ourselves with the fact that, well, we still have the word and we still have baptism in the Lord's Supper, you can get that in a lot of places. But if we're going to be a healthy church, if we're going to be a beaver that's recognizable, then let's show these characteristics. And that's going to happen by us holding each other accountable to it. Having high expectations for one another, along with the unlimited grace that God gives. So if I can get really specific, what if, instead of every member visits being once a year, they started becoming every other month? That I sat down in your house and we talked about specific parts of your Christian life that we talked specifically about how much you give in your offerings. We talked specifically about whether or not you're in a life group. We talked specifically about your marriage and your children's relationships and your friend relationships and how you are at work. What if every time you miss church, we called you? Every time. Because church is something we do together every Sunday. What if we, we made a commitment to be in each other's lives and be in each other's houses? So we weren't just faces we saw together on Sunday morning, but we were faces that our lives were intricately tied together. Do we want that? I'm guessing there's some of you who do want that. And I'm guessing those same people are the ones who realize that as much as they might want that, it's really hard. So you have to plug in to what the text says is the power source to make this happen. It was right at the beginning of the text. When Peter finishes his sermon, the text says that they were cut to the heart. Like literally surgery was being done on them. They were so broken down by God's word that they couldn't help themselves but cry out to Peter, what on earth are we going to do about this? And if that's how God's word is hitting you right now, then hear what Peter says. Repent. Remember your baptism. You're forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. You are given all of Christ's righteousness to tomorrow start to be this church, to be this healthy expression of church. 
Now, for those of us who hear those words and we say, yeah, I'm going to just kind of continue consuming church and sort of just going my own way, you're not forgiven. And that's the reality. If you hear God's words and you reject them, you're not forgiven. And we've got to be honest about that. But I think the vast majority, if not all of us, are repentant of this. So it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen as we grow together. But to the extent to which we're unwilling to invest in this kind of church, we will get it on the other side. To the extent to which we are willing to invest in the word of God and fellowship and the Lord's Supper and corporate worship together, God will bless our church. So let's pray for him to do that. Jesus, you've called together this congregation to be a beacon of light to this community. You've asked us to preach the word, to administer the sacraments, to love one another, be part of each other's lives. And through that, you will bless the people of our community. Convict us for our trust in all the things that are not your word, for all the expressions of church that we love that are not actually the essence of what you want to do, and drive us back to the things that actually bring your life-giving power into the world. Help us to repent of our unfaithfulness, of our lack of commitment, or of our selfish aims, and then bring us that gospel once again to free us from that shame and purpose us into a life different from the way that we previously thought. I ask that for the sake of our congregation and ultimately for this community. Amen.